Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Do you know anyone who is a particularly passionate person? Maybe, maybe you are a particularly passionate person. What is it that makes a, a person really passionate about something? Maybe, is there something that, that you would say you are really passionate about? And, and when it comes to passion for something, how do you see people who are, who are just very passionate people? Often I think it depends on if... If the people are passionate or zealous, which is a word we're going to see in our passage this morning, about whatever it is that we are passionate about. So if we share that passion, if, if we cheer for the same team, then typically we view those passionate people more positively. We see that as something we can identify with or connect with. But if people are passionate about, let's just say, they're fans of the other team, or they're passionate about something that is kind of the opposite of what we're passionate about. They're kind of really zealous about something that we're kind of on the other side of the equation from. How do we see those people? Do we see them as positively? Typically, we see them as annoying, right? Or, or we see them very, uh, very differently than the passionate people who are more on our side. And so when we think about passion... Um, it, it is something that's, that's, that's not bad at any level. Uh, it is something that gets a lot of things done, right? Passionate people and passion for things have made a lot of changes. There's a lot of things that have happened in the world because of passionate, zealous people. Uh, but, but it is something that, that can, can cause different reactions. So we're in the South and there is a lot of Passive aggressiveness. People say, "Bless your heart," you know, and, and and so it's kind of a whole different system of of operating. And so when we see you know people who are really passionate, uh, it can it can sometimes rub us uh, rub us the wrong way. Well, we are going to see an example in the life of Jesus where he is passionate, he is zealous about. Something, but one thing I think that's important. So we've been going through this reframing Jesus sermon series, and the point of this sermon series is that we have to be careful not to reframe the picture, the portrait of Jesus in our mind around our own preferences, our own context, our own agenda. But we, through this study through the Gospel of John, are hoping to reframe our portrait of Jesus in our mind around what we find in the scriptures, around the version of Jesus that we find in the gospel of John. And, and so one of the things that we can do with this particular passage is that we can take Jesus and his passion and his zeal and we can connect it to whatever cause that we're part of or whatever kind of view of the world that we have. And we kind of take this, you know, this version of like angry Jesus and we attach him 
to whatever it is that we are angry over and to kind of like justify that. And I think that's something we have to be very careful about. And that's why I want us to really consider what this passage says, what it is that Jesus is passionate about, why he is expressing this passion, and what this looks like for us as those who want to follow him. And so we're going to consider how we reframe passion around this picture of Jesus. The first thing that we're going to find in our text is passion for a place. So the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Well, the Passover, and and by the way, this is the first of three Passovers that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. The final Passover is going to come on the week of ultimately Jesus' death. But this is the first Passover that Jesus goes up for. And this is one of the feasts that all Jews, wherever you lived, had to come to Jerusalem. And they had to be in proximity to the temple. So you would have had this massive influx of people. Jerusalem would have been about 150 to 200,000 in population. But during the Passover, you know, it would be well over a million people. Uh, and so everybody was coming into the city and, and around the temple to make their sacrifice and and their offering and to participate in the Passover Seder and all of the celebrations that went along with that. Now, the temple is going to be a, a, a significant focus of this text. And so it's important to understand what temple this is. And this is not the first temple who, uh, which Solomon built. And this is not the second temple uh, which came after this Babylonian captivity uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah's days. This is the third temple. Who built the temple that was standing in the days when Jesus went to Jerusalem? Herod, right? This was Herod's temple. And what's interesting about this temple is there were Jews who saw this temple very differently. So if you're familiar with the concept of the Dead Sea Scrolls, these, this Qumran community that we have found all of these scrolls that were out in a cave in the desert wilderness, kind of near the Dead Sea. Well, that Qumran community, which would lead to a group called the Essenes, they saw this temple as not a legitimate temple. And we know that there were, there were different sects that, that did not get behind this temple. They did not believe that this was something that, that God was doing, but this was very much kind of this political uh, structure. And so there were, there were different perspectives at some level. Herod took a much smaller footprint and he, he made it massively uh, larger than it had been. It was over one and a half million square feet, which is the equivalent of 30 football fields. Uh, so massive. Uh, and he gave it this beautiful facade of, of marble gilded with gold. And so just this massive investment financially. And it took, you know, almost 50 years. So this massive project uh, that unfolded. And, and so this is the temple where Jesus comes to Jerusalem along with all of these other Jews 
for the Passover. There, well, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, so, well, no, I'll read it. So, First Kings eight twenty seven, we read this. So Solomon, when he's writing, when he's when he's uh, when he's building the first temple, says, "But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you." much less this temple I have built. And so I think it's important that there are passages that we find throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, that reference this idea that God does not live on earth. The, the whole earth can't contain God. He's greater than anything. And so there was never this full belief that, that God was limited in his presence to this place. But, but there was this recognition that God does work in specific places. And, and so the way the Jews saw this particular place in Jerusalem uh, was that this was really the overlap of heaven and earth. That this was this, this kind of Eden-like place where, where heaven and earth overlapped and where the presence of God was uh, accessible uh, at that level. And so uh, this, is, this is why it was so important and and why the actual structure itself had so much uh, significance. That leads us to our our second focus, which is passion for purity. So in the temple, verse 14, Jesus found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. So what is taking place? Well, if you were coming to Jerusalem for Passover, you were going to offer a sacrifice. And could you just bring whatever animal you had with you? Well, in many ways that was impractical because you were coming a long way, but also you needed to have, for instance, if it was a lamb, a spotless lamb. And it needed to be one that was was approved at some level. And so you needed to purchase that from these uh, individuals who are associated with the temple who are selling these, these animals. And, and so one of the elements that I think is important to consider here uh, is, is what that meant. And so have you ever been to a sports game or to a concert and purchased something at the concession stand? Are those usually reasonable prices? <laughs> right? Are you ever like, man, you know, that's a good deal for, you know, a $12 hot dog and a $10 Coke. No, you know, that's, that's kind of how it is. And so there, there are these elements that are taking place of, of, of location and, and the accessibility. There, there's a supply and demand issue at some level. And so there is this, this dynamic, and there, uh, there are these coins that are, these money changers are, Selling, and this is about a temple tax. So, in order to come into the temple and participate, you had to have a particular coin, and it was made out of a certain amount of silver. And so, you had to convert whatever your currency was into that temple tax. And so, this is kind of the there's a lot of of exchanging of money, buying, selling, exchanging that's taking place. And so this is what sets up what we find in verse 15. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned 
the tables. So this is, this is a version of Jesus that is, that is kind of different than what we often see. We see him doing these things of throwing over tables and, and making a whip and driving people and animals out of the temple. He told those who were selling doves, verse 16, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, I want to address that whole thing, but why were doves part of this equation? Well, if you were poor and you could not afford the particular animal that had been assigned uh, to, to the sacrifice you were offering, you could get a dove. And so the doves were specifically for those who were poor because this system was, was not built to just be an unbearable burden for those who, who did not have the financial resources. And so there's this provision that was made. And there's a lot that's written when we read this text as well as this, this particular account uh, in other gospels, uh, the, the synoptic gospels. That's a, a point of emphasis that's made is, is that there does seem to be this potential of, of causing poor, the poor people to actually have to, to pay more than, than what was reasonable. And so Jesus uh, is, is calling for all of this to be removed. He says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. He's basically saying this place that was meant for worship of my father has turned into a Costco before a three-day weekend. Right? Like, it's just, it's not reflective of what was intended. And, and specifically, and, and the other accounts make more of this, where is all of this marketplace taking place? Where, where, where is it that, that this is located? All of this buying and selling and exchanging and, and all of that. It's in the court of the Gentiles, right? The court of the Gentiles. And, and Solomon... When he built the temple, and we read in 1 Kings 8, was this always supposed to be just for the people of Israel? No, it wasn't. He says right from the beginning, the intent is that people will come from all over and that they will come to, to pray and to worship God and, and, and come to see this God that is, that, is, that is not just limited right to these people, but they were intended to be uh, a people who, who brought the presence of God and, and brought the nations and the people around them to come to see and to worship their God. And, and so this is something that, that is not reflective of that. The fact that the court of the Gentiles is, is not being used in the way that it was intended, but it's filled with all of this, this marketplace. Uh, Eli Eisenberg says, Here we see Jesus perform the highly symbolic act of temple cleansing, by dispersing those who turn the house of God into a profane but profitable industry. And one of the things that is, is important to, to know in, in what Jesus is doing in, in purifying or, or cleansing the temple, that's how this is used, is that in preparation for Passover, you were to get one thing out of your house. What was that one thing? Leaven. Right, So anything breaded that's in your closet, if I were to open your pantry, you know, anything made by hostess or uh, you know, any, any of your bread or you know, croutons, whatever it is, uh, all of that 
was to be removed, and there was this cleansing to prepare for the Passover. And so the fact that this happens in preparation for the Passover, many have said, is reflective of the fact that there's actually this impurity that has settled into the temple. And the, the temple leadership was predominantly Pharisees, and there were these arrangements with Rome, and there were ways in which this system um, had issues that were problematic. And, and, and again, the kind of the way things were unfolding uh, was, was not reflective of, of some of the initial intent. And, and so when we think about that, it's interesting to consider Jesus as cleansing the leaven out of the temple with what we find in Matthew sixteen six. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the what? The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this is not, you know, condemning this, all of the people who were, who were part of that group. But there's this recognition of, of this impurity that, that comes out of this particular group who, who have influence, who have leadership over the temple. And so in Jesus' actions, he is purifying his father's house before the Passover. And, and this is going to lead to our third point, which is passion for people. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, that passage comes from Psalm 16. And in the flow of Psalm 16, what's important to see is that David is passionate about his father's house. Now, is the temple available? Is it built when David writes these words in Psalm 16? No, it's not. Right? So he's not talking about the temple. There is, there is at that point what? What is the, 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 the kind of the representation of God's presence on earth? The tabernacle. And so David's passion for God and for God's presence and, and this representation there leads him to suffer. And that's what you see through Psalm 16 is that he is rejected. He is reproached. There is suffering that he experiences from the people around him because of this zeal. Verse 18, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? So you just made a a real mess, Jesus. What sign, what miracle are you going to do to justify this, to basically prove that, that you have the authority to do Something along these lines. Now, here's the, the undercurrent of what's happening. What is the sign? So this is the second sign. John is going to show us seven signs through his gospel account. This is the second sign. What was the second sign? This is what just happened. Right? The sign itself was cleansing the temple. And, and that action of cleansing the temple was intended to, to show the people who saw it who Jesus was, what he was coming to bring. But, but they don't see that the sign had already taken place. And so basically Jesus is saying, if you need another sign, right? And, and he's going to point to what will be the final sign that he shows. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up? In three days. So what do the, the Jews think 
that Jesus is talking about. The physical structure, right? This massive building and and the courtyards and all that they see around them. And it's taken Herod 50 years and lots of volunteers and lots of resources. And so it's insane. And, And this is a pattern that you're going to see through John is that Jesus, when he does these signs, there are always these people who who have an issue with it, and they ask him questions. And, and so there's this Q&A that happens under all these signs. And the people who he's talking to always take him literally and physically. They, uh, they're like um, that guy in Guardians of the Galaxy that, uh, you know, that's over my head. And anyway, nothing's over my head. Uh, I can't remember his name, but anyway. They, it's, it's very literal. What's his name? Somebody tell me, just for a there we go. Thank you. So, uh, Drax. Yeah. So, so that's how it goes. And so because of the physical, literal way that they take Jesus' words, there's a missing of the sign of kind of this higher uh, meaning that Jesus actually has. And so this is where John writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, what was it? So if he is saying, hey, this temple is going to be destroyed, right? That's what he's saying, that this is going to happen. Is his passion and zeal for this physical structure, these physical blocks and the edifices and all of the elements, is that what he's, what he's ultimately passionate about? No. What is he passionate about? He's, he's passionate about the worship of his father, right? He's passionate about people rightly worshiping his father. And, and he's passionate about access to God. What's being blocked at some level is, is this access to God and to his presence and to worshiping him. And this is where... We're going to see this play out in Jesus' life. Part of the reason why he has so much opposition is because he's around the wrong people. He eats with people who are unclean. He accepts into his group the people who, who are not acceptable, right? And this is very much going to be an issue between uh, often the Pharisees and, and Jesus. There's this way in which he, he is being accessible or making himself accessible to those who, who are seen as impure or, or seen as outside of acceptability. And, and this very much is part of what leads to his ultimate rejection and death. And so this is where we see that the passion that consumed Jesus when he cleansed the temple would literally consume him on the cross. That the passion that he had for worship of his father and the passion he had for this access to God would literally, as Psalm 16 says, consume him. He would give his life for that. And... As 
an expression of this. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain inside of the temple, we sang about this earlier, that represented this disconnect, this separation between God and his holy presence and the sinfulness of humanity outside. What happened to that court curtain? It was torn, right? So at the moment when his body, and Hebrews draws this out, that the, the, his flesh was torn, that, that, that veil, that curtain was torn. And what was that showing? That access to God was being made available through the death of Jesus. And, and this is what we've seen. So we looked three weeks ago at this, the Jacob's dream of this ladder between heaven and earth. And what does Jesus say about himself? He's that ladder, right? He's that connection point between heaven and earth. And then we saw last week this wedding. And we talked about the fact that this is, this is representative of what Jesus is coming to bring. He's coming to bring about this wedding. And, and ultimately, where heaven and earth are, go, are going to be wedded together, there's this, this bringing together of, of the presence of God and, and the wine, which is this joy uh, and gladness, this life that, that is represented through the Spirit is going to be made available. And now the temple, this place that represented this overlap of heaven and earth, Jesus is this temple. He's coming to bring about this, again, this accessibility, this, this connection between people and even the people who, who are kind of excluded and, and disconnected and God. And this is where we see the connection that Jesus is going to make in John 15, 4 through 5, where what is true of him, so he is this connection point, right? He is the light. He is the life. He is this expression of, of God's presence. That is going to become true or available to those who trust in him. John 15, 4 through 5, he says, Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. He's saying the relationship of those who believe in Jesus, who put their trust in him, is like a vine with branches that are connected to the vine. And what is the, the life-giving source? Is it the branches? No, it's the vine. That The, the life of the plant, grape vine, let's just say, is flowing through the vine, but it goes out through those branches that are connected. And what grows because of that? Fruit, right? And so there's this expression of what is in the vine, and ultimately this is the spirit of God, is what we're going to see, that this spirit that is within Jesus is now sent through those who are connected with him, through faith, so that fruit can be produced through, through us, right? Through our lives. And, and this is where we see this expression that Jesus, who claims that he is this ultimate temple, is now going to, 
to say this about those who are his followers. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, Don't yourselves, you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Paul writes about this again in Ephesians. We, those who, are, those who trust in Jesus, who are his followers, become this temple. And is this temple made up of a specific nationality or a specific group? No. Who makes up this temple? Anyone who's connected to Jesus, right? So no matter what race, what nationality, what gender, no matter who you are, you are united together as this living temple through your connection to Jesus, that he is in you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who? But Christ who lives in me in the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives through us. And so this is the desire that is the Spirit of God is within us, that that is to spread through us. And, and this is where we have to ask the question, what needs to be driven out of your life? So Jesus drives these animals and you know the money collectors and all of these people out of the temple. What needs to be driven out of your life so that Christ can work through you? Was it, what is it in your life that is a blockade or that is some kind of a barricade that's keeping the love of God, the love of Christ, his purposes and work from, from spreading through you to the people around you? What is it that Jesus needs to drive out of you so that he is free to work through you in the way that he wants to? Right? Because those are, that's what, what sin in many ways is. Right? And that, like things like unforgiveness and bitterness, things we're holding they, they are blockades. That anything that we put at the center of our life, other than Jesus, it becomes a blockade from Him working through us freely, from, from, from the fruit being produced. And so, and so that's the question. What is it that Jesus is calling you to surrender to Him so that He might work freely through you? So that you might be this expression of the presence of God to the world around you. I invite you just to, to, to take a, a moment and consider that. And if, if you're here and you've, you've, you've never truly trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've never received this life from God, we would invite you in just a moment. We're going to sing and, and we'll open the prayer room and I'll be there. Denise will be there. We'd invite you to come and talk with us or pray with us or if there's any other prayer requests that you have, anything that we can pray for you, we'd invite you to come to that prayer room while we respond. desire 
is that you would work through our lives. We desire that your spirit would lead us, that your spirit would use us to bring your presence and your love to the people around us. So we ask you to search our hearts to show us if there's things that need to be driven out of our lives. Things that are keeping us from bringing this full expression of Christ, Christ living in and through us. And so Father, we turn away from those things We surrender to Jesus. We pray that your spirit would empower us to have that constant surrender to you, to you living in and through us. We thank you that Jesus did die on the cross, that he was the ultimate sacrifice, that his blood covers all of our sins and purifies us completely. We thank you that he rose from the dead to offer us fullness of life and your spirit to come live within us both now and forever. If there's anyone here who hasn't received that gift of life, we ask that they would now. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.